on the north shore of Oahu, Hawaii, is a beach called Waimea Bay. It's one of the most dangerous surfs in the world. In the winter, waves can crest up to 40 feet high. The crashing water is strong enough to snap a swimmer's bones. These days, lifeguards patrol the area, but that wasn't always the case. If you look behind the stand where the lifeguards sit, you'll see a large volcanic boulder. From far away, it just looks like a rock, but it actually holds a memorial to one of Hawaii's greatest heroes, Waimea Bay's first ever lifeguard, a champion surfer and symbol of strength and sacrifice. Today, I'm sharing his story. It's about more than him though. It's about the culture he loved, the people he saved, and the dream he died for. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a man who spent his life protecting others. As the first lifeguard at one of Hawaii's most dangerous beaches, it's estimated he saved over 500 people. When he disappeared in 1978, his only goal was to save his friends. His name is Eddie Aikau. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hello, lover of things that go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. To understand Eddie Eichau's story, we have to start by going really far back in time, all the way to the year 400, when Polynesians from the Marquesas Islands started sailing canoes across the Pacific Ocean and landed on what we now know as Hawaii. They're believed to be the first people to settle there. And for over a thousand years, their culture thrives. They have rich spiritual traditions, a deep connection to the land and ocean, and a strong network of religious and political leaders. 
Then, in 1778, a British explorer named Captain James Cook lands on Kauai, one of the many islands that make up Hawaii. He brings a large European-style ship, his sailing crew, and the usual trappings of colonization. Disease, violence, and a distinct belief in Anglican superiority. The history is complicated, but what you need to know is, the colonization doesn't stop with Captain Cook. Americans and Europeans continue arriving on Hawaii's coast. Slowly but surely, they co-opt the island for their own benefit. See, Native Hawaiians don't believe in land ownership, and colonizers use this to their advantage. They buy up plots of land that Native Hawaiians are using, but don't legally own. As they turn communal properties into pineapple and sugar plantations, many Hawaiians are kicked out of areas they used to call home. Entire communities are bulldozed and replaced by hotels and resorts. Hawaiians are forced into schools with blatantly Eurocentric ideals. They're discouraged from speaking their own language and taught a sanitized version of their history. By the early 1900s, Hawaii is considered a US territory, not because native Hawaiians want it to be, but because American businessmen, the ones running the pineapple and sugar plantations, have overthrown the Hawaiian monarchy. The area is so thoroughly occupied that the US Congress can just pass a resolution saying the islands belong to them. And to take it a step further, Hawaii is added to the union in 1959, becoming our 50th state. By this point, it's estimated the native Hawaiian population has gone from around 800,000 in the late 1700s to less than 40,000. They've been killed, displaced, and depressed in every way imaginable. Many of those who are left live in poverty and have limited access to education and economic opportunities. Hawaiian writer Alani Apio describes it as, quote, a thousand little cuts to genocide. This is the world Eddie Aikau inherits. When Hawaii becomes a US state, Eddie's 13 years old. He lives on Oahu with his five siblings and his parents, Solomon and Henrietta. The Aikaus don't have much money. Sometimes all they eat is rice and fruit picked from trees. The kids often spend their days at the beach, diving for loose coins and fish. They have to get creative with how they make ends meet, which is why they live on the grounds of a Chinese cemetery. The deal is, the Aikaus maintain all five acres in exchange for free housing. Everyone's expected to pitch in. When they're not at school, the kids pull weeds and clean headstones. They cut acres upon acres of grass with nothing more than sickle blades. It's a difficult existence. But like a lot of indigenous Hawaiians, they take the concept of ohana very seriously. It means love, fellowship, family. No matter how tough life gets, they always make it work and they always have each other's backs. Which isn't to say Eddie and his siblings don't fight. There's bound to be conflict with six kids running around. So once a month, Solomon sits them all down and holds a ho-open-open-o, which means to make right. It's a time where they can air their grievances and work out any built-up tension. No one's allowed to leave until apologies are made and the conflict's been settled. It's an important ritual that ensures the family stays close. As for Eddie, between school, work at the graveyard, and family, he doesn't have a lot of free time. But when he does have a moment to spare, 
His favorite place to go is Waikiki Beach near Honolulu. That's where Eddie and his siblings learn to surf. They use pipo boards, which are like boogie boards made out of thin slabs of wood. A couple years later, Eddie graduates to a rented surfboard. And as soon as he catches his first big wave, he's hooked. Now for Eddie, surfing isn't just a sport. It's a spiritual experience, something that links him to his ancestors. Remember the Polynesian Islanders I mentioned? The first people to settle in Hawaii? Well, they created surfing. Hundreds of years ago, they held surfing competitions. Kings and queens rode waves as a show of strength and connection to the ocean. So Eddie's partaking in a centuries-old activity with a huge amount of cultural significance. I'm not exaggerating when I say surfing means everything to him. When Eddie's around 16, he shines shoes and sells newspapers until he saves up enough money to buy his own surfboard. Before long, he's competing in amateur events and winning trophies. He quickly cements himself as one of the most talented young surfers in Hawaii. He's so good, he thinks he can go pro. At 17, Eddie tells his dad he wants to drop out of school and devote himself to surfing full time. This is tough for Solomon to hear. He has a sixth grade education and knows the challenges that come with not having a diploma. At the same time, he respects Eddie's decisions and his surfing ability. Solomon's hesitant, but he agrees on the condition that Eddie also gets a job. No matter how talented his son is, Solomon knows Eddie has a long road ahead of him before he starts making money as a surfer. That's good enough for Eddie. He finishes his shifts at sunrise and heads straight to the beach where he surfs all day long. Eventually, Eddie saves enough for a brand new board. It's bright red, easy to spot in the waves off the coast of Waikiki. For the next several years, Eddie hones his skills and makes friends in the surfing community. A lot of them are what Hawaiians call haole, foreign. Native surfers are far outnumbered by white Americans, especially guys from California, which is frustrating. It feels like there's not much space in the surfing world for Hawaiians, even though the sport is directly tied to their culture. Case in point, in 1965, when Eddie's 19, there's a new surfing competition called the Duke Kahanamoku Invitational. Now, Duke Kahanamoku, the person the competition's named after, is a legend. He's known as the father of modern surfing. He's also a descendant of Hawaiian royalty and now holds public office in Honolulu. And yet, out of 24 surfers invited to compete in the Duke, only two are Hawaiian. Almost all the rest are white, so you can probably see why a lot of Hawaiian surfers, especially Eddie Aikau, have a chip on their shoulder. To him, the Duke's about more than getting famous. It's about representing his people. Finally, the next year, 21-year-old Eddie gets the letter he's been waiting for. He goes to the second annual Duke and makes it all the way to finals, but he doesn't win. A man from California does. After this, Eddie gets restless. He feels like he has something to prove. He isn't just surfing for himself. He wants to show the world that Hawaiians deserve a place among the best. That leads him to Oahu's North Shore, to Waimea Bay. The beach is studded with everyone from California pros to local kids trying to make a name for themselves. Waimea symbolizes the pinnacle of big wave surfing. Reporters and photographers line the shore, 
waiting to snap a photo of anyone who manages to ride one of the swells. But as the waves climb 20, 30, 40 feet high, some recognizable surfers keep their feet firmly in the sand. Few wanna risk a life-threatening wipeout. They've heard too many stories about the waves at Waimea breaking people's boards, snapping their bones, holding them underwater until they black out. Almost everyone's scared, everyone except Eddie. He swims out on his bright red board, hoping to catch a wave. In a world of deep fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify. In November of 1967, Eddie Icow paddles into the rough waters of Waimea Bay. The ocean seems to take on a life of its own. Swells grow larger and larger crashing into violent waves. Eddie doesn't slow down. As another swell comes, he readies his board. Before he knows it, he's paddling on a 40-foot wave. He swings his legs around and stands up. From the shore, the crowd watches him ride. Amidst the chaos of the ocean, he looks calm, peaceful, like he's meant to be there. Reporters snap pictures of him gliding through the water. He makes it to shore in one piece. This is the day Eddie's life changes. His photos are published in Sports Illustrated. They get so popular, they're printed on Bank of America checks. Almost overnight, Eddie turns from a local surfer into an international icon. But Eddie's nothing if not humble. Sure, he has big aspirations. He wants to keep competing. His ultimate goal is to win the Duke Kahanamoku Invitational, but not because he wants to be famous. It's all in service of something bigger than himself. His family, his people, his culture. Basically, Eddie has his priorities straight. While a lot of surfers, Hawaiian and otherwise, are known as big partiers and risk takers, Eddie's able to drink and joke around without ever taking it too far. He's usually pretty quiet, but put a guitar in his hand and he'll get the whole room singing a Hawaiian folk song. Eddie's kind of like everyone's big brother. He just has this way of making those around him feel safe and supported. Plus, he already has a reputation as sort of an unofficial lifeguard around several beaches. Knowing how dangerous Waimea Bay is, people have been campaigning to get a lifeguard there for a while. When the local government finally starts looking to hire one in 1967, Eddie seems like a shoe-in. But there's a problem. One of the job requirements is having a high school diploma. Even without this, Eddie manages to get an interview. He makes the case that the ocean's been his teacher. 
He has knowledge you can't get in a classroom, the education of firsthand experience. It's a compelling argument, one that even the government can't dispute. Eddie's hired. Just like with surfing, he sees it as more than a job. It brings him closer to a very specific ancestor. See, Eddie's the great-great-grandson of Kahuna Nui Hewahewa, a spiritual advisor to King Kamehameha I. They both lived around the time Captain James Cook colonized the islands. Hewahewa did a lot, but one of his most important accomplishments was overseeing the spiritual health and safety of one place, Waimea. He protected Waimea Bay, just like Eddie will now. The Icows think it's destiny. Over the next several years, Eddie devotes himself to his role as protector. It's difficult to say exactly how many lives he saves. Some estimates are as high as 500. But one thing we know for sure, not a single person dies under Eddie's watch. What separates him from other lifeguards is his fearlessness. Whether the waters are calm or the waves are three stories tall, he'll risk everything to bring a person back to shore. Eddie went from a local kid to an international surfing sensation. Now he's even more than that. He's a hero in the truest sense of the word. He's the Duke Kahanamoku of his generation. A phrase takes off around Hawaii. If someone's nervous about going into the water or taking any kind of risk, they say Eddie would go. And it inspires them to move forward, even in the face of fear. So publicly, Eddie takes on this larger than life persona. A lot of people see him as superhuman, but privately, Eddie's living a very human life. One full of ups and downs. In 1970, he meets a woman named Linda. She's visiting Hawaii from Seattle and the pair hit it off. Eddie's family can tell he's head over heels pretty much right away. He's dated women in the past, but nothing like this. For her part, Linda's immediately taken with life in Hawaii, especially how close-knit Eddie and his family are. Linda comes to the Aikaus with respect, and in turn, they welcome her into their ohana. Linda and Eddie are married within the year. They move into an apartment near the North Shore. Eddie continues lifeguarding at Waimea, and Linda gets a job in Honolulu. They're the picture of domestic bliss. Then, two years into their marriage, the Aikau family changes forever. On December 9th, 1973, Eddie's brother Gerald leaves for a party in his friend's car. It's late at night and they're heading to the North Shore. His friend falls asleep behind the wheel and the vehicle hits a telephone pole. Gerald dies. It's all just so sudden. The whole family is devastated, but Eddie's siblings say he takes it the hardest. He feels like he never got a chance to tell Gerald how much he loved him. A few days after the memorial service, Linda wakes up to find Eddie gone. She and the rest of the Icows spend hours tracking him down. Eventually, they find him at the Catholic cemetery. He'd fallen asleep on top of his brother's grave. Eddie's never the same. According to Linda, Gerald's death is the worst thing that ever happens to him. It puts a wall between him and everyone he loves. Linda says, quote, that wall was grief and I didn't know how to get over it. And I didn't know how to get him over it. 
the only thing that seems to bring any any peace is the ocean. Two years after his brother's death, he's back to lifeguarding and participating in surfing competitions. It's now 1975, and the surfing world is changing. The Californians who once reigned supreme are being replaced by a new group, Australians. And Eddie doesn't like them. Most Hawaiians don't. Three Australian surfers in particular come to the island, win some competitions, and start talking trash. They say Aussies are the best surfers in the world, while Hawaiian surfers are boring and old-fashioned. Unsurprisingly, this doesn't go over well with the people whose ancestors literally invented the sport. Tensions rise fast. Fights break out between Hawaiians and Australians. The three Aussies are beat up so many times, they're scared to leave their hotel. Soon, there are rumors that someone hired a hitman to kill them. The Australians sleep in shifts, one of them always guarding the door. Now, Eddie's not fond of these guys, but he definitely doesn't condone violence. After what happened to Gerald, he doesn't wanna see anybody die. So Eddie does something unexpected. He goes to the Aussies hotel and knocks on their door. They're terrified holding tennis rackets and bats, but Eddie convinces them to follow him out to a conference room. They walk in to see dozens of angry faces. Eddie's managed to gather practically everyone in the Hawaiian surfing community in one room. To the Aussies, it feels like a public trial, but to Eddie, it's the most sensible course of action, a way for everyone to air their grievances, to work out the tension. It's a ho-open-open-o, just like his dad taught him. And it works. The Hawaiians explain how the Australians' actions were just icing on the cake. Yet another insult after two centuries of colonization and oppression. The Aussies say the meeting is humbling. They admit how wrong they were and come away with a new respect for the local community. It's all thanks to Eddie, the surfer, protector, and now the peacemaker. At this point, Eddie's nearing 30. He's known as the King of Waimea Bay and has a cabinet full of trophies from various competitions. His photo has been printed all over surfing magazines and he's done numerous television interviews, but he still doesn't have the things he really wants. To win first place at the Duke Kahanamoku Invitational, his brother back, or a happy marriage. Losing Gerald put too much strain on Eddie and Linda's relationship. By 1977, she separates from him and eventually files for divorce. Eddie looks for a way to fill the void, so he turns to the first thing on that list of wants, the Duke. Later that year, he gets invited. It'll mark the 10th time he's taken part in the competition. And in the pro surfing world, that's a lot. Eddie doesn't have many tries left before he's looking at retirement, but this year is different. While most Dukes are held at Waikiki where Eddie learned to surf, this one's at Waimea Bay, Eddie's domain for the last decade. It's like he has home court advantage. On the day of the contest, the waves are massive. Even seasoned pros are shaking in their boots. The morning's full of wipeouts that are hard to watch. 
men falling 30 feet, then getting pulled under the surface. By the time they make it back to shore, they're just glad to be alive. As the day goes on, it becomes clear Eddie has a special connection to Waimea. He's able to predict the waves in a way no other surfer can. He knows when the biggest swells are coming, when to hop on his board, and how to glide across the water without getting sucked underneath. After 10 years of trying, Eddie finally gets his gold. In his acceptance speech, he dedicates the win to his brother, Gerald, his entire family, and all Hawaiians. It's the moment he's been waiting for. And yet, he goes home feeling empty, restless. Eddie's still so torn up about losing his brother, it's like he can't sit still. He needs a distraction, another goal to strive for. And he finds one in the form of a little boat. Well, a double hull canoe to be precise. It's called the Hokulea, and it becomes the focal point of Eddie Eichau's hopes, dreams, and disappearance. The Hokulea is a double hull canoe created by the Polynesian Voyaging Society between 1973 and 1975. It's 62 feet long, fashioned out of little more than wood, canvas, and rope. Not a single nail is used. Why? Well, like a lot of Hawaiian history, it has to do with Captain James Cook. Remember, Cook landed in Kauai in a large European-style ship, and when he got there, he was amazed he wasn't the first one. He and many Western academics going forward thought Polynesian Islanders didn't possibly have the skills or technology to sail to Hawaii on purpose. The prevailing theory was that they landed there because of so-called accidental drift, like they got in canoes and just ended up in Hawaii by chance, which is absurd. Polynesian Islanders have a long history of seafaring, even in the year 400, they knew how to build sturdy canoes and navigate the Pacific with only the stars to guide them. Native Hawaiians can even point out the constellation their ancestors followed to reach the islands. It's called Hokulea, which is where the double hull canoe gets its name. Now, this widespread belief that they ended up in Hawaii by accident is insulting. That's why the Polynesian Voyaging Society decides to build the Hokulea. It's a replica of the type of boat their ancestors used, constructed with materials that would have been available to them 1,500 years ago. Their plan is simple. Sail the Hokulea to Tahiti and back using the stars to chart their path. All this to prove that Polynesians and their descendants can thrive without the help of Western technology. When Eddie Aikau hears about the mission, he's desperate to get involved. It feels like the perfect next step. The Hokulea represents everything he believes in. Not only that, it's a way to channel his grief into action, to connect to the larger Hawaiian Ohana, to stop dwelling on his own fractured family. Eddie is one of hundreds of Hawaiians who sign up for a chance to join the Hokulea's crew. He quits his lifeguarding job and spends months training, learning to sail and navigate. When it comes time to pick the crew, only a dozen names are chosen. Eddie's at the top of the list. The expedition is set to start in just a few months, on March 16th, 1978. To those around him, Eddie seems confident. 
when asked about the journey, he says, quote, I'm proud to have kahuna blood that links back to Hewa Hewa. As a crew member myself, I'll just be trying my best to help take everybody down safely. But the truth is, Eddie's nervous. Normally, he's at home in the ocean, but that's when he's near the shore, close enough to swim to the beach. The thought of being in the middle of the Pacific with no guaranteed way to call for help, that scares him. Eddie knows better than anyone how dangerous the sea is. Although it gives life, it can take it away just as fast. Still, he can't back down. He won't. So he gets his affairs in order. He tells his parents that if anything happens to him, they should still consider Linda a part of the family. He pays off all his debts. The night before, he writes a will. The next morning, the whole iCow family, including Linda, goes to Magic Island to watch the Hokulea set sail. They're not the only ones. More than 10,000 people gather along the shore. Government officials wish the crew a safe trip. It's an exciting day for the whole state. Something's wrong though. The sky is gray and the ocean is roiling. Winds blow at nearly 40 miles per hour. Some of the Hokulea's crew think the weather is too dangerous to go, but with thousands of people watching and the leaders of the Polynesian Voyaging Society pushing them, postponing the trip doesn't feel like an option. Around 6.30 p.m., the Hokulea takes off. Almost immediately, they hit rough waters. The waves are close to 10 feet tall. And with such strong winds, it's impossible to keep water from blowing into the canoe. For hours, they wrestle against the storm, doing everything they can to steady the boat and keep dry. But as they drift further from Hawaii's coast, the weather only gets worse. There's another huge swell, another gust of wind, and the Hokulea capsizes, throwing the whole crew into the freezing ocean. All the food they packed for the journey sinks to the ocean floor. Their clothes, supplies, and emergency equipment are lost. The only way they can call for help are the flares someone happened to be holding before the canoe flipped. The 12 crew members climb onto the bottom of the vessel, which is now floating above the water. They're wet and shivering. The boat is still rocking over big waves. It's around midnight at this point. Everyone keeps looking out for passing planes, Setting off a flare while one flies overhead is their best chance of being rescued, but the sky is eerily empty. Now, what you need to understand is, right away, this is a life or death situation. They're stuck in the middle of the ocean with no food or water. They're all at risk of hypothermia. Some crew members are already seasick and dehydrated. They can't just stick it out until a plane happens to pass by. The crew estimates they're around 12 miles from the Hawaiian shore, way too far for the average person to swim. But any iCow isn't your average swimmer. He's the king of Waimea Bay. If he can save 500 people from drowning in some of Hawaii's worst waves, he thinks he can make it to shore to save his teammates. He tells the captain, let me go for help. The captain says, no, it's too dangerous. They need to wait until morning. Around 6 a.m., after 12 hours at sea, the sun rises. Eddie says it again, let me go for help. The captain still says no. There are finally some planes overhead, 
If one flies by low enough and the crew sets off their flares at the perfect time, there's a chance they'll be saved. 10.30 a.m. rolls around. The crew thinks they've drifted out even further now. They're maybe around 20 miles from shore. Every moment they wait makes swimming to land more unthinkable. Finally, the captain caves. He gives Eddie his blessing. He grabs his surfboard. He doesn't tell his crewmates goodbye. Instead, he says, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. And he sets off into the rolling waves. The crew waits and waits and waits. Another miserable night starts. Some of them are vomiting. Others have hunger pangs. And a few are drifting in and out of consciousness. But they don't lose hope. They imagine Eddie reaching the shore and sending authorities to their rescue. Every time a plane flies by, they set off a flare. Once the sun sets on March 17th, after nearly 30 hours at sea, a plane finally notices them. The pilot contacts the Coast Guard. Around midnight, a helicopter hovers over the upturned canoe and brings the entire Hokulea's crew to safety. The entire crew, except Eddie. By 2 a.m., the word of the disaster has spread all over Hawaii. The Coast Guard flies the crew to Honolulu, where hundreds of people are waiting to see if they're okay. The Aikau family, Solomon, Henrietta, Linda, and all of Eddie's siblings are in the crowd. It doesn't take long for the truth to dawn on them. Eddie tried to save everyone, and now he's the only one missing. Henrietta falls on the tarmac, sobbing. Immediately, it's all hands on deck. Everyone from Coast Guard officials to amateur surfers scan the ocean for Eddie. It goes on like this for five days. Remember, Eddie's a hero. People are willing to go to incredible lengths to find him. One man searches the edge of a cliff, but ends up slipping and breaking his leg. This seems like the final straw for Eddie's family. As hard as it is to admit, it's pretty clear what happened. Eddie tried to swim to shore and didn't make it. Whether that's due to exhaustion, the harsh weather, or even marine animals, no one knows. But everyone agrees Eddie likely drowned. Solomon doesn't want anyone else to get hurt, looking for answers that probably won't be found. That's not what Eddie would want. On March 23rd, Solomon holds a press conference, telling everyone in Hawaii to stop searching for his son. The Icows just want peace and privacy to mourn their loss. You don't need me to tell you that Eddie's disappearance and likely death is harrowing for his family. Even in interviews decades later, they can hardly talk about it without crying. But instead of dwelling on the end of Eddie's life, I wanna talk about the ways his memory lives on. Eddie Aikau and the Hokulea are inextricably linked. After the disaster, the canoe is rebuilt. And in 1980, it successfully makes the trip to Tahiti and back. The crew says it felt like Eddie was there, sailing with them all the way. The dream that meant so much to him finally comes true. Six years later, a new surfing competition is established. The Eddie Aikau Big Wave Invitational. It takes place every year at Waimea Bay. Like Duke Kahanamoku, 
Eddie is a legend with a competition all his own. I started this episode by telling you about his memorial at Waimea, the volcanic boulder that sits behind the lifeguard stand. The plaque talks about the Hokulea capsizing and how Eddie risked everything to save the crew. It finishes with a few sentences that capture just how important he is to the Hawaiian people and to those he loved. That's what I want to leave you with today. Eddie Aikau is gone, but his name will live on in the annals of heroism in Hawaii. His spirit will live too, wherever the Hokulea sails, and on the beach of Waimea Bay, where as a city and county lifeguard, he saved thousands of lives from the dangerous waters. This was a great man, a great Hawaiian, and he will live in our hearts forever. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found Eddie Would Go by Stuart Holmes Coleman and the ESPN documentary film, Hawaiian, The Legend of Eddie Aikau, incredibly helpful. If you felt compelled by Eddie's story and just Hawaiian culture and traditions in general, like I did, I'd like to encourage you to check out the Eddie Aikau Foundation. The Eddie Aikau Foundation is a charitable organization created to share Eddie Aikau's life, contributions, and accomplishments while promoting education and the advancement of Hawaiian culture. Founded by the Aikau family, the foundation pays tribute to Edward Ryan Makua Hanai Aikau in honor of his love for his family and others, his courage and compassion in saving lives, and his dedication to the Hawaiian people and culture. Eddie's legacy is a pure symbol of the aloha spirit. The foundation's ambitious goals are realized through advocacy, education, and philanthropy. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Braro. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Karis Allen, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history— the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death, pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.